0: Good evening, everyone. It is Thursday, October the 31st, 2019. It is currently 10.08 p.m. Central Time. Well, about 10 minutes ago, I pulled up in my driveway, got out of my car, shut the door, opened the front door to my house, walked in, shut the front door, and went directly to my study. When I arrived at my study, I picked up my iPad And I started searching for something. I was like, okay, I've got to find this. Now, why was I doing that? Well, when I was in my car driving, I was listening to Christian radio. And on Christian radio this evening, somewhere between 9.30 and 10 p.m. Central Time here in Abilene, Texas, on our local Christian radio station, American Family Radio, they had a program. And they were talking about having armed guards within churches to provide what they call a ministry of security. And the idea is that each church would have a group of individuals who who form a ministry of security. And what their job would be is to keep the people who attend church services protected. And if someone was to enter one of those churches with a gun trying to harm, trying to kill people, that they would set a plan in motion to neutralize, if need be, kill the armed intruder, to kill the one who's trying to kill the people in the church. And they referred to this as a ministry of security. Now, I got to be honest with you. If you know me, you already know my reaction, but I'll be honest with everyone else who doesn't know me. As soon as I hear that, I just start shaking my head and it just sounds... At least my initial reaction is always, this just doesn't sound biblical. It doesn't sound like what is true to historical Christianity. You don't read of churches in church history taking up arms to kill those who would try to harm them. In fact, if you read especially many of the early church fathers and those who were martyrs, they saw dying um, as almost an honor dying for their faith as an honor not something to take up arms to try to prevent but to say hey yes okay thank you take me to my death it's an honor i'm willing to go but now we have within the american church this idea now that it's that it's a ministry it's a ministry to have armed guards to say hey you come into our church you try to kill our people we will stop you if need be we will You because we are providing a ministry of security to our people. Now I struggle with this. I struggle with this greatly. Let me, I'm just going to try to be as honest with you. Okay. My my first reaction is always to oppose it, but I I have I've always done this. No matter how much I oppose a view, I am always willing to listen to the view that i oppose to really think about it. So here was a program. My my, you know, obviously my my first uh, uh, you know, reaction could have been i disagree with this turn it, but i don't do that. I'm like, "Nope, listen to them make their argument." And and there's a part of me that really believes, "Look, if 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 someone came into my church, I, I wouldn't want anyone to be harmed. I wouldn't want any, I wouldn't want any of the children to be harmed. I wouldn't want any of the fam- the adults to be uh, uh, harmed. If there were visitors, I wouldn't want them to be harmed. And I I know that I would hopefully do everything in my power to try to stop it. I, I I believe I would. I don't believe I could just stand there. I believe I would do something. But here's the thing: if I was to do something, I don't carry a gun. I don't own a gun. But if I used physical force and I was able to. to to disarm the intruder, maybe you know, you know, cause physical harm to them, so that I could keep them from doing anything else. If I did that, would that be right from a biblical perspective? Remember, we we have a Bible that tells us to love our enemies, to resist not evil, to turn the other cheek, to bless them that persecute us. How how do we how do we do this? You know, um, how do we view? If I if I did that, like on one hand it would be great because if I, if I you know I would preserve life and protect life, but on the other hand, would I be doing it in a biblical way? And I've always struggled with this concept. For most Christians, it's like it's no big deal. Someone comes to my church, you know, someone comes into my house, someone comes into to, to the church, and I have a gun, and they're trying to kill me, my family. I'm gonna shoot them and they and they believe that it's it's biblical. They believe it's right. They believe it's God ordained. They believe it's their God ordained responsibility to protect others even if it means killing someone. And and sometimes I just have to go wait a minute. Let's look at this. If every if someone came into my church to kill everyone, right? I hope and pray that at least You know, as far as I know, the majority of the people who attend uh, uh, services at my church, I I know they've made a profession of faith. I know that they claim to be a Christian. So if I believe they to be a Christian, and if someone comes in with a gun trying to kill everyone, my perception would be the person coming in to kill everyone is not a Christian. So if we kill him, we send, or her, we send them straight to hell, while my members, if he was to kill them, he would just be sending them straight to hell heaven how do we, do we want to kill someone who's trying to send us to heaven how do you, how do you view this I, I i know i ask questions and people get mad at me please don't get mad at me just i want you to hear that i struggle with this issue but this is what i wanted to do i don't necessarily completely agree with this perspective but the the discussion was very interesting and the individual that is being interviewed He's lived through. He was, a, he was in a church where someone came in and started shooting. That, that had a profound impact on me listening to his story because he's experienced it. I haven't experienced it. I'm trying to look at it purely from a theological perspective, purely going, okay, how do I exegete the text? And does the text allow me to say, hey, I need some men in this church to have a gun, take some classes, and form a plan on what we would do if someone was was to come into this church? Um, I I have to exegete. I, I try to view it from a theological perspective going, okay, does the text allow me to come up with this plan to have what they call a ministry of security? Or does the text seem to preclude it or would not support it? But... You can have the text trying to figure... And I know this is going to be contrary to what some, some Protestants claim. We claim Scripture is our final authority. But if this, here's the thing. If the Scripture doesn't specifically outline it as a possibility... We, we'll put it this way. We know the Scripture clearly doesn't command it. But does the Scripture clearly prohibit it? Or is this a gray area? Well, first of all, we have to look, look at it from a theological perspective. But but sometimes when you set aside the theological perspective which i still think obviously what scripture says is most important you do have to sometimes look at it from a practical perspective i'm not saying this dis- i'm not saying in any way shape or form this this should cause us to dismiss the clear teaching of scripture what i am saying is sometimes you have to step back and go okay let me close the text for a minute and let's hear a story of someone who's been through this and imagine what it must be like to be inside a church and someone comes in with a gun and starts killing people and no one in the church has a, a way of defending themselves. There's nothing they can do. They just sit there and die. They can hide, they can run, but, but they're, they're trapped. How do I process that? Now, of course, scripture has to determine what we do, but the reality of it is somewhat disturbing. So I I like to be fair. Even though I have a strong view and I struggle greatly, I wanted the other side to be heard. So I came in, grabbed my iPad, did a searching, and I found the program. I found the program. And the program is called, let me pull it up, it's called Family Talk. It's uh, hosted uh, by Dr. Uh, James Dobson, who used to be on Focus on the Family. And uh, this program is called, um, it's Family Talks, the name of the program. The name of the episode is Ministry Security in a Violent Age. And it looks like this is part one. Ministry Security in a Violent Age, part one. I want you to hear this. I think you will be, I I found it to be a fascinating discussion. It it told me some different things that had happened. I think it raises lots of questions. Now, they make an argument that society has become far more violent, that these things are far more common, and, and, and churches feel like they don't need to worry about it, but they seem to make an argument that churches are vulnerable and that churches need to think about this. And if, if there's any more shootings at any places of worship, whether it's a, uh, you know, an Islamic place of worship, Jewish synagogue, or a Christian church, if, this, if, it, if it continues to happen, And any regularity, then more and more churches are going to adapt some kind of security system in order to handle armed intruders who are trying to kill people. Now, the question has to be first and foremost is it biblical? Secondly, okay, once we set that aside, for those who say no, it's not biblical, we have to at least acknowledge that it's easy to say it's not biblical, it's another thing to witness it. Witness it as it's happening, to experience human beings being killed while well, no one can do anything. It's drastically different. It's one thing to argue about it in a theological argument with everyone's got an open Bible and everyone's trying to throw their scriptures to support it. We exegete each text. Put it in its context and try to come up with a reasonable. That's one thing. That's, that's a theological discussion. But when, once the Bibles are closed and then church is just going on and all of a sudden someone comes in and the gunshots are start being fired, it takes on a whole different reality. And we've got to consider that from both perspectives. I'm going to try to be fair. So this is what I'm going to do I'm going to play this entire episode and I'm not going to offer any commentary. Now, I know 99% of the people are, are going to agree that it's perfectly acceptable for churches to have armed guards. It's perfectly acceptable to have certain men in the church armed or women in the church armed and ready to go with a plan in place that, hey, so everyone, if someone comes into this church with a gun, here's where you go as fast as you can. And that individual and that individual and that individual, they have guns and they will be the ones who are assigned to protect you and we have a plan in place in order to try to neutralize an armed attack. That—that that uh, Most people are going to agree with that idea. So I'm playing something that's going to support your presupposition. Probably I could argue that maybe I should find audio of someone arguing against this I doubt there's going to be much audio of people arguing against this position, but it does bring up an entire subject. What's happening in our society? Should we be concerned? Do we live in fear? We're not supposed to live in fear. Do we live with anxiety? We're not supposed to live with anxiety. What, we, we, we say God is our protector. He's our rock. He's our shield. He is our fortress. However, do we still have a responsibility when it comes to personal security and the security of those who attend our churches? So, sit back, you listen, would love to get your feedback, not to debate, not to argue. I don't want to debate and argue this. That we're talking about a very serious issue that deals with the lives of people. This is something everyone needs to remain calm about. And sometimes we may have to admit, because of fear, because we don't want to see someone die, we don't want to see someone suffer, that sometimes we just have to admit our feelings and our thoughts become the authority by which we operate and not simply looking to Scripture alone. Sometimes we have to, when you deal with a subject as sensitive as this, I'm sorry, I think a lot of people are just going to try to find a verse in the Bible that they think supports it, and they're done with it. They're not going to spend countless hours and months trying to uh, come up with a biblical theology on when and when you should not seek to defend yourself. And I've heard all kinds of weird, well, if they're coming in to kill me for my faith, I won't defend myself. But if they're just coming in to kill people, then I will. Well, how do you know what motive the, the shooter has? How are you going to determine that? Do you're going to raise your hand and go, hey, Mr. Shooter, are you here to, just to kill us because we're Christians? Yes. Okay. No one defend. No. One, everyone put down their gun. We All will die as martyrs. Wait, oh, you're not here to kill us because we're Christians? You just want to kill people? Okay. Roger over there. Go ahead and shoot him and kill him. Like, I don't even know why people make such a weird distinction because you're not going to know the motive of the shooter. I mean, that's just... That's just, I don't even know why we even try that. But, but Christians want to try to find a way to justify their actions. Look, sometimes we, sometimes, this, and I know this is not very Christian, I think sometimes we have to admit, if this situation occurs, I don't know if I have biblical support, but this is what I'm going to do. And it may not be right, and I'm just going to have to accept that. Sometimes I think we have, we, we can't bring ourselves to say that. I've said it before. If I had a gun, and someone was to break into my house and try to kill my wife or my, any of my children, grandchildren, any anything like that. I, If I own a gun, I, I'm telling you, I'm not only gonna shoot the person, I, I would use every bullet I have in that gun to continue to shoot the person until they were dead and then probably put more bullets in the gun because that, that's just, there would be a rage inside of me. There would be an anger that they would come in to try to kill people I love. And I'm not going to sit here and try to pretend that that's biblical or right. I would kill the person. And I would not care about their eternal soul at that moment. Now, I can't say that's biblical. Because I'm supposed to care about their eternal soul. And I'm supposed to even love my enemy. I'm supposed to turn the other cheek and resist not evil. So sometimes acknowledging what I would do. It's different than, than trying to justify it being right. I mean, I'm raising lots of questions, but here we go. Let's listen. Let me know what you think. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. As you can hear in my voice, I struggle with this subject so much. I struggle. Oh, I struggle. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Armed guards. And other times I'm like, no, this is not right. My, my From a biblical perspective, I, I I'm very firm. I don't believe there's biblical justification. In my heart, I struggle thinking, man, I can understand it, but then I go back biblically. I can't really justify. It. So if you ask me from a biblical perspective, I'm very strong in my stance. But deep down, I also struggle with, I don't want to see, I, I don't want to see anyone die. I don't want to see anyone suffer. That's why I hate war. That's why I'm, I'm very passive. I'm, I'm a pacifist, and in a lot of ways, I think I don't like human suffering. I don't like seeing people die because if hell is real. Killing people sends them there if they're not saved. That's that's a troubling comp. That's troubling in my mind that I'm going to pull the trigger. That's going to put someone in eternity. That's a, that's a fearful thought from my perspective. So maybe I think I think according according to most people, I give this way too much thought, and it's most people act like it's just way simpler than I make it, and they don't understand what my problem is. But you know, I, I'm more than willing to, to to have that discussion. I just. I used to debate this with people. Now I'm done debating. I'm just like, if you want to have a meaningful, heartfelt discussion, I'm willing to talk about it. But every Christian and every church, if what's been happening over recent years continues, it's going to become a much more of a reality that churches are going to have to think about. So let's listen to what was discussed, what I heard this evening about a ministry of security and an age of violence. Listen carefully. Let me know what you think at at newsifyahoo.com. Here we go.
1: This is Roger Marsh for Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. Now, before we begin this broadcast, I need to remind you that some of the content that we'll be discussing today is intended for mature audiences. So if you have little ones listening in right now, parental discretion is definitely advised. Either occupy them with something else, or you can come back to this presentation at a later time listening on our website at drjamesdobson.org. Thanks so much for joining us for this edition of Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. Today on Family
2: Talk. Well, greetings, everyone. I'm Dr. James Dobson, and you're listening to Family Talk, which is a listener-supported ministry. We would not be here without those of you who are kind enough to help support us, and thank you. Uh, Today, we're going to discuss a very sobering subject, and I hope you listen carefully because it might have great meaning for you and your Christian friends. It brings to mind Charleston, South Carolina, Sutherland Springs, Texas, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Poway, California. I wonder if you know what those cities have in common. They are the sites of some of the most vicious terrorist attacks against places of worship in the last decade. They each involve the wanton, senseless murders of innocent worshipers. All of these events arose from a common hatred and hostility toward churches and Christianity at large. Because of these violent acts, we're required to take safety measures to protect ourselves. I think everybody knows that. Unfortunately, this is the world in which we live. I'm joined today by Mr. Carl Chin. He's a national spokesman for church security and currently serves as the president of the Faith-Based Security Network, which we'll talk about later. I've known Carl for many, many years, going back to his years at Focus on the Family, where he was the building manager for the ministry. Carl has addressed numerous law enforcement, security professionals, and ministry leaders Across the nation. He's also been tracking violent attacks against religious organizations since the late 1990s. His book, Evil Invades Sanctuary, documents some of the research he compiled, which we'll talk about today. Carl has a very up close and personal connection to this issue. He was at Focus on the Family in 1996 when an armed assailant, came on our campus and held him and three others hostage. I was in Washington, D.C. that day. Carl, thank you for being here, and as a place to start, tell us your perspective on what happened that day.
3: You know, Doctor, I was sitting at my desk right up behind the HR training room, and my radio went off, and we had just enhanced our duress alarm system so that we would get messages over our radio. And uh, I know we talked about it back then, but one thing I never told you, but I'll tell you today, when I got that message, it said administration building front desk. And I took off for the front desk, but what I didn't tell you before was I thought it was somebody wondering, what's this new button do? And since I worked with So you
2: thought they were just
3: playing with... It. I thought it was somebody testing it. And mm-hmm. so I, being a black and white person and working with blueprints and specifications, I thought, I'll just measure this and see how long it would take me to get there if it was the real deal. Mm-hmm. And, doctor, I walked clear up on the gunman looking at my watch. I never looked up until I was right at him, and I remember thinking, 17 seconds, not bad. I could be here pretty quick if this was the real deal, Mm -hmm. and
2: I looked up, and I was face-to-face with a gun. He took you and three others hostage on that day. He had a gun. Mm -hmm. What was he demanding?
3: At first, it was very unclear. He was just angry and cussing and telling everybody that he was going to blow the building up. He had a firearm in his right hand and his left hand. He had a trigger device connected to a pile of green army bags on the floor in which he claimed was enough explosives to bring the building down. And uh, he was just very unclear at first, just cussing and saying, better get your blankety-blank people out of the building before I bring it down. And then it was after everybody was out of the building except the four of us that it became clear that he was wanting to make a phone call. And he kept saying, uh, once I make this phone call, it'll all be over. And we didn't know what that would mean. But I didn't want to let that happen.
2: Hmm. Actually, at one point, he fired his gun. And uh, there, when I left there, there was a bullet hole. It's still there. Uh, up uh Ten feet from the yep. floor. Yep. How did that happen? That happened
3: after he released us. We the four of us were released about ninety minutes into the into the hostage situation. And the Colorado Springs Police Department hostage negotiator that was on the phone to him said that he fired that one shot and he asked him, he said, What was that? and the gunman said it just went off accidentally. I never believed that and neither did the police because suicide people will often pull the trigger once just to get the feel. Yeah. And uh,
2: well, I was uh, as I said I was in Washington DC and I got a phone call saying that there's a hostage situation the gunman is in our entry uh, area. The building was totally surrounded by police and snipers and uh, the SWAT team members, uh, and they were just in kind of a waiting mode trying to figure out what this guy was going to do. They didn't want to put our employees at risk, and I'm getting all this information uh, by phone. One thing I could do about it was wait and hear. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, took place? How did that unfold? Well, one reason they were limited in what they
3: could do is he kept holding up that trigger device like it was a dead man trigger and and daring them to kill him. You said, had to take that serious. He said, you shoot me, I'll drop this, and these explosives will go off. And so that was one of the things that was creating an issue for him. And, uh, of course, he had the two ladies right there in the enclosure with him. I was outside, and so was the security guy. And we were on the outside of that desk. I mean, still right there by him, but not inside the enclosure with him. Did you ever consider tackling him or trying to disarm him? You know, it's the kind of thing where the guy really has control at that point. He's got a gun in one hand. He's got what's supposedly a dead man trigger in the other. Your options are pretty limited. Uh, on what you can do. And we have the same issue that the law enforcement did.
2: Now, as I remember the incident occurring, the police came in the building and were behind a wall and they were just getting ready to charge him, to run at him. And he gave up. That's right.
3: They were right at the end when they were getting ready to take action and when he finally him gave if up. They had and to. they probably would have. And I asked the police negotiator, I said, what made him give up? He said, I told him if you'll lay down your weapons and disarm your your explosives and put your hands above your head, I'll have your picture on every news media in southern Colorado. He said, We will have news media outside. They will film you coming out and your story will be told. He said, If you force us to kill you, I'll do everything I can to keep this quiet. And he said, I was telling him the truth and he knew it. He said, Well, oh, what here. he
2: was angry about is he had been a steel construction worker. That is and correct. And had, uh, during the building process, he had slid down a girder. That's right. And lost control and fell mm-hmm. and fell on some steel rods down below That's and right. penetrated his uh, midsection. Well, I mean, the, he was
3: terribly he was, injured. It was right? a very bad injury. I was there the day he was injured. And uh, I went out and looked at the injury. You know, I, as building engineer, I was out at the building often, and I saw the ambulance come. I saw him take him, and that was in October of 1992. October 28th. So he had lived with this for four years. He had lived with this budding anger for four years, and then he decided to come back and exact his revenge.
2: And his anger was misplaced because he was was was... working for a contractor, but he was was coming after us. Yep.
3: Uh, Hoping for a lot of money, I guess. I I think that's the root of it. And, you know, that that gets back to what I do now. You never know when somebody walks through your door what the source of their hatred or their anger is. And it may make no sense to a normal person processing good thoughts. But when somebody has anger and hatred and vindication, you don't know what's in their mind when they come through your door.
2: Well, he was arrested that day and was was, uh, charged and tried and found guilty and Mm -hmm. sentenced to 17 years. 17 years. But let's talk about you. You were there that day, and that made a profound impact on you. And in fact, you began to do a study uh, on churches and other religious organizations that were uh, subjected to this kind of assault that's right all the details are different but you
3: learned a lot from that sure did Uh, something else i never told you about that day but remember i i became the spokesman for the ministry and the four hostages in the trial that followed and every day before i went to the trial we would gather in prayer up there in the boardroom most often and uh, one of those days before i went to the courthouse we were praying and you know how it is when you're praying and and you're also in a personal conversation with god and the prayers going on but i felt like the lord was telling me that i should uh, write about the things that i'd learned and i remember just almost arguing with god i was standing there i'm the building engineer <laughs> i don't mm-hmm. write I look at blueprints and I work with contractors. I don't write. I failed writing in high school. <laughs> I got an F, Doctor. Uh, and you know, and I I was standing there as people were praying and and we said the amens and so I said amen and just kind of figured I'll have this conversation with God later. And Charlie Jarvis was standing right next to me, and he put his hand on my shoulder. He was one of my executive vice presidents. He was. <laughs> and he said, you need to write all this stuff down. You need to write a book. And I've, I've never told Charlie that what he told me was what I was hearing from the Lord.
2: Well, you did write a book. It's called Evil Invades Sanctuary. So you're talking about the broad scope of the danger that is faced by every Christian organization or church or ministry, including
3: our own. That's right. That's right. I it all started there in the lobby of Focus on the Family because that day I really wasn't thinking it would ever happen here. Yeah, we'd done some improvements after Oklahoma City. That's why we installed some upgrades yeah. is Oklahoma City got our attention. But, you know, doctor, I still didn't think it would happen here. And that denial is is what cripples
2: a lot of leaders. That's one days. of the conclusions you've drawn. You bet. That um, Christian pastors and ministers and those in position of authority do not understand that they are also at
3: risk. That's right. That's right. They They often have a tendency to... Uh, believe and even at times say well God will protect us and you know a a scripture I go back to often is Matthew the 6th chapter where Jesus told us don't worry about what you eat drink and wear and I, I believe worry is a mild case of atheism I think that's really what he was saying but you know I've never met anybody who sits up in the morning and clothes float down on them out of heaven we have to be intentional about those things that we eat drink and wear and safety and security is the same way i believe god protects us i do i I told you we have 20 grandchildren i pray over those vehicles when they go somewhere i if i can get a chance to go out in the morning if they're visiting us i'll lay hands on that vehicle and beg god to protect them but you know what? I I also want my sons and my sons-in-laws to buckle them up, yeah. and I want them to drive right, and I want them to watch for other drivers and be a good
2: defensive driver. It takes both action and faith. So you went on from that beginning to what you're doing now. You're speaking in churches and organizations around the country, and you have— Become uh, quite an expert on this subject. One um, bit of information I got from your book is that from the early days of the United States of America, we went 187 years—that's right—without an attack. It's not till 1963 that the first one occurred, and now it's all
3: over the place. Now, when we say attack, it's careful to say. Uh, let me be careful to emphasize. In those 187 years, we'd never had a mass murder. A mass murder is defined by the FBI as four or more killed in a single related act. Had never occurred. Had never occurred. 187 years of American liberty had never occurred until September the 15th, 1963. Man, that tells you something about what's going on in America. It does. It does. It's a direct graph as to what's wrong because when Tree of Life happened in October of uh, 2018 where the the killer came in and killed 11 in the synagogue in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, that was the 15th mass murder since 1963. 187 years, no mass murders. Now here in 2019, we've had 15 since 1963. Well, that's what we mean
2: by senseless when someone was murdered or and in some way assaulted in that way in those uh, earlier years of the country, it was usually anger between two individuals. That's right. Or two or more individuals. Now it's anger at the whole culture almost. That's right. It, it's it's That's an right. expression of hatred for humanity. Yeah.
3: One thing that was consistent for years was people primarily, not always, but primarily killed people they knew. That has changed over the last 40 or 50 years, really. Uh, People will go in and commit a mass murder where they don't care what the names are.
2: Let's go back to uh, the false sense of security that people have, uh, if you go through one of those, you don't have that anymore. You think it can't happen to you. And as a matter of fact, right here in Colorado Springs, you experienced yet another one. <laughs> I did. It had oh. to do with New Life Church That's here right. in Colorado Springs. Tell us what happened that day. We had
3: law enforcement on site, and their agreement was over at one p.m. As soon as they left, within just a few minutes. We had smoke uh, from a commercial smoke canister on the north main entry of our building and then on the south main entry, and then the killer parked over by the east main entry and came in shooting. He killed two girls in the parking lot. We didn't know that, of course, on the inside of the building. I was upstairs with Brady and Jack Hayford. And didn't even hear the shots outside. I didn't hear the shots until he was coming in the building. It was totally random. I remember he was just
2: running through the parking lot. Hear these poor girls stepped out in his pathway, and he killed them. That's right. That's right. They were just getting in their
3: family van. David and Marie come out after Sunday church on cloud nine, going to dinner with their four daughters. They'd heard Jack Hayford. All of them loved it. Getting ready to go to dinner, and then the shooting started, and killed two of them, and walked and, on and in. Then shooting. went into the church. That's right, and those were the shots that I heard, and several of the other. There were four of us still on duty, and all four of us went towards the gunshots. Two of us were armed, two were not. The two who were unarmed turned around and started clearing kids out of the hallway. And they did a remarkable thing that day, Buck and Dave did. They cleared that hallway of kids as bullets were going past them. And I sat up in one ambush point down the hall, and I didn't even know Gina Assam was still there. She was brand new to our team, been there. This was her third week serving with us. Not a police officer. She She's a... right in that area yep. where she was confronted. That's right. And what does she do? She blindsided the killer from his left side. She came down hallway 160 as he was shooting in my direction, and uh, he didn't even see her come in. And then she shouted her commands at him to drop his weapon. He didn't, and she fired and wounded him, and then he did what many of these cowards do. He stuck the gun in his own mouth and pulled the
2: trigger. Isn't it amazing that right in the same area... Three and a half miles away. You were involved in an incident like that, yeah.
3: and and doctor. After that second one, I was absolutely convinced that my life has changed. It has gotten definition, and I got to do something to
2: get this message out. That we need. So you feel the Lord has laid this on you and said, "This is this is your mission." No question. I am very focused
3: on this. And I, I do feel like this is the one thing that God called me to do.
2: Carl, we mentioned that you're very knowledgeable of this issue of the risk that churches and Christian organizations are facing. And now you are being asked to come and speak. And- um, advise people on how they can get uh, more protection for mm-hmm. their organizations and for their churches and individuals. When you come, what do you say? How do you begin to inform them of what they need to know? Well, one
3: thing is I I often surprise churches and communities because I I tell them how we started our program at New Life and what we called our safety team and what it's still named to this day. You tell uh, them why? I do. I tell them we're the life safety ministry because the last thing we want to do is have volunteers serving on our team based on the sensationalism associated with security. We want people who are truly an ambassador of Christ. They truly care for other people.
2: Don't you first have to convince them that they need to take steps to protect themselves because they, many people live in bedroom communities and they don't really believe it can happen here. Tell us that it can. Oh, my
3: goodness, it can't hit ever. And I was one of those people who didn't believe it'll happen here. As we said yesterday, uh, when I first walked up to that gunman at Focus on the Family, I didn't think anything was real. And the thing that that did is it changed me, and I decided I don't want anybody else to have that stupid feeling because mm-hmm. it, it it just catches you flat-footed and surprised when you're not expecting something like that.
2: We have a sick culture. We do. We have mental illness everywhere. We have drugs. We have people who are confused they're angry they have been abused themselves some of them have children they often do crazy things i mean who would shoot two little girls down in cold blood like occurred at new life church who would do that
3: and, and you look at that, and you look at something like Sutherland Springs. I was here across the glass when you interviewed Frank and Sherry Pomeroy, very, very dear friends of mine. And that, in Texas. Then Texas. And that killer just walked around the outside of the church just shooting holes through the wall, not caring who he was killing. Did that for several magazines worth out of his AR, and then came through the doors and shot so much inside the building
2: building that the smoke was thick. Sutherland Springs, Texas, I used to live down there. Who would have believed that that would happen in that peaceful community? Yeah. Even Frank himself
3: will tell you, and he often tells audiences that on Saturday before the killing happened there, he was asked by a guy, what do you think about all these church shootings? And Frank said, it'll never happen at Sutherland Springs. And the guy said, why? And he said, well, two reasons. One, nobody knows where Sutherland Springs is. And he said, another reason is we all carry guns in Texas. We're Texans, or something to that effect. And Frank tells audiences now, he says, you know, having concealed carry and having a couple guys that you know carry, that's no plan. That's no plan. (laughs) That's just having guys who might carry a gun. You've got to be intentional about it. We
2: are out of time for today, uh, but we're obviously not through. We haven't even gotten into what churches can do, and that's where we'll start next time. Okay. For those that will not hear us next time, how can they get in touch with you? www.fbsnamerica.com Carl, thanks for Thank being you, with doctors, us. This is a very honor. important topic. Thank you. God be with you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: I'm Roger Marsh, and you've been listening to Dr. Dobson's conversation with church security expert Carl Chin. Now, I know today's program was heavy to listen to at times, but this is certainly an important topic nonetheless. Churches and faith-based organizations must be ready to defend themselves from real physical danger. And as Carl said today, we can always rely on God's protection. However, He does call us to be smart and also to be prepared. Learn more about Carl's organization called Faith-Based Security Network when you visit our broadcast page at drjamesdobson.org. Once you're there, you'll also see a link for the book that we discussed today. It's called Evil Invade Sanctuary. Find all of this information and more when you go to drjamesdobson.org and then click onto the broadcast page. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Be sure to join us again tomorrow for the conclusion of this enlightening conversation on church security. That's coming up next time right here on Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. This has been a presentation of the Dr. James Dobson Family Institute. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Tim Clinton, Executive Director of the James Dobson Family Institute. Our ministry here exists to honor the Lord through ministering to today's families and marriages all over the world. We couldn't accomplish that, however, without your support. And as the JDFI, the James Dobson Family Institute, continues to grow, we need your help. Visit us, will you do that, at drjamesdobson.org. Or call us toll-free at 877-732-6825. Stand with us and fight for righteousness and culture.